If you ever get the chance to walk down the open Galerie des Orléans in the Palais Royal, you may be able to imagine the imposing figure of the Red Eminence. His swirling cardinal's robes billowing behind him as his buckled shoes clatter on the marble floors, on his way to attend some great matter of state in service to his king and to France. Cardinal Richelieu, the arch-strategist, was always busy with matters of state. And his influence has bled into Europe, along with the blood of the wars he started, the idea of the modern nation-state, and his network of spies. A note for this episode, there may be some annoying French pronunciations by me. I'm going to do my best to get them right. But since Cardinal Armand Jean de Richelieu was the founder of the Académie Française, I'm going to do my best to at least honor him by pronouncing things where I can correctly. And I'll abstain from <laughs> Blind History. We're on to um, an episode about somebody who I've always thought was fascinating and was a suggestion from one of our listeners that we cover, Cardinal Richelieu, who was the first minister of France under King Louis Thirteenth. Not much to look at, but uh, he had that famous little beard and the little moustache, little goatee, the flowing hair under the cardinal's cap, and always in red. Famously, he is depicted, and most people may only know him from The Three Musketeers by Alexandre Dumas, um, where he's the villain, he's the bad guy, he's the manipulator, the arch-propagandist of that time, and the musketeers have to fight him in order to do their king a great service. Of course, the reality is that the king was hugely dependent on Richelieu. I think that was probably a good summary of... Do you think so? Should we stop there? Okay, well, then we can just stop there. So anyway, he was born um, a a fairly ordinary chap. Um, His father died when he was quite young. Um, His mother needed one of her sons to go into the clergy because there was a bishopric available nearby. And his brother said, hell no, I actually am a believer. I'm going to become a real priest. And so uh, Armand Jean said... Pas de problème, I will go and be the, the bishop. He was elected, he was very young. He had to actually go to Rome and have a papal dispensation issued so that he could become the bishop of that particular town. And before he knew it, he was in public service. Uh, so he was born in Paris. Yes. But he'd gone to Paris, obviously, for schooling. And uh, schooling in those days, it was a lot more about being a courtier and learning skills, learning how to fight, but also learning how to uh, act in the royal court. There yeah, is no doubt that this guy was very clever. From an early age, he, he had a very good brain and a quick wit and an ability to get people to do what he wanted. Yeah. It could have gone both ways. But like you said, his brother decided to become a monk. And so he had to take up this position on behalf of the family. But he did an incredible job. If you look at Catholicism, at the time they needed to, if, if the right word is to freshen up, to take on the Protestant angle that was Absolutely. happening. Especially in France with the Huguenots who'd become a very powerful lobby. Yes. And, and strong the, politically, yeah. And remember the clergy were hugely involved in politics. It's not as if they stuck to religion and the nobles stuck to politics. It was a mixed bag. And the Etat General, which was eventually the cause of the French Revolution, the breakdown between these different estates, part of the reason is that the lines were so blurred. 
yeah. at that point. So he saw it as an opportunity also to advance himself and his family. Correct. And I think he put things through like the clergy weren't going to pay taxes. Yes. And trying to put a lot more onto the poor commoners. Mm-hmm. He was so clear in what he wanted to achieve. He needed to put France back on top, mm-hmm. get rid of the interbred Habsburgs. Yeah, he uh, didn't like the Spanish no. and the Austrians, which were the Habsburgs. And then he wanted to get rid of the weakened king scenario. And, well, and the nobles had far too much control agreed. at that stage. And so we've got to start the story by just outlining who the kings of France at this time were. And I even drew a very simple family tree just so I could figure out who's who here. So Henri IV was murdered, but he was married to Marie de Medici who was apparently very stupid. She was. And quite large. She was large, stupid, but but ambitious. But, a, but ambitious and not a bad strategist. Yeah. Just shows you, you don't have to be super clever, like Richelieu, to be a yes. good strategist. Marie de Medici got everything she wanted all the time. Yeah. And she eventually was so irritating to her son, Louis XIII, who was the next king after Henri IV, that he eventually locked her away. Correct. <laughs> he got rid of her. her. Yeah. But she was the woman who opened the gates to Richelieu to become the courtier and the, and the minister that he became. When he became bishop of his home area where the, he grew up, mm-hmm. they voted him to go and talk in front of the royal court. And he obviously was just charismatic and he said all the right things. And Maria de Medici just thought, this guy's incredible. We've got to bring him in. And I think at the time, they always had somebody in, in government that was looking after their interests. And I think she did as well. Yeah. And, and he was the right guy to do this because he was an efficient administrator, a cunning strategist, and someone who understood how to raise certain people up and suppress others. I mean, he, he did lower the power of the nobility to a degree where the king had the kind of power that he could effectively make decisions and the Correct. nobles had to carry it out. So absolute monarch. And that set the path up for Louis the Fourteenth eventually. But also what he did was he picked uh, Louis the Thirteenth's friends, or yeah. you would call it. Yeah, his whole court. His whole court. He decided who to surround uh, the king. Yeah. This king must have been a bit dim. I think he really relied on him. But what was clever about him, he said, look, I must keep this guy around. So when his mom started talking cuck, he he needed to exile her. He got Every now and then he lost the plot and he did say it's the end of the road. I think it was really only once. It's the the end of the road. And I think it lasted 24 hours and the king ran to Richelieu and said, please come back. I'll get rid of my mom. Just come back. So that's one thing that Louis XIII understood. He really needed Richelieu. And if we look at who the king was... Of France at the time, it was Richelieu. Yes, uh, without a doubt. I mean, there's that, you refer to the Day of the Dupes, which is yes. basically where he had his lowest influence. The enemies of Richelieu had started to believe that they had succeeded in persuading mm. the king that he was no good. But as you say, it lasted a few days, a few hours, and then he was reinstated as first minister. He needed him more than he needed the enemies. Correct. How the, the nobles got their strength in that they always had their own armies and they could mobilize it or they could get together. So what he did was he destroyed all their castles, just not the ones on the borders to protect against the inbreeders, but but definitely in the other castles. And <laughs> so the they had no strength. Let's just mention here as a note to this that Antony's not being unkind. The Habsburgs at this stage were the dynasty of the Holy Roman Empire, which was in Austria and in Spain. There were two arms of the family. They, they might have had three arms the way that they were <laughs> intermarried. But they were so inbred, it's not unfair to say this, that some of these kings had chins that stuck out further than their noses. Some of them had um, 
cleft palates and ears on the back of their head and not great. If you just look at pictures of the Habsburg, it's fr- <laughs> you know, the, the chin basically goes down to the belly button. They had to be helped to eat. And you're right, the ears were properly unbalanced. That's not even, you're not stretching the truth. So his one problem was with the nobles. And as you've pointed out, he managed to destroy their authority over the king and concentrate the authority of the king and centralize the government. But he also took out the Huguenots. He was publicly very opposed to them as a strict Catholic and later as a cardinal, which is as a prince of the church. And they called him the Red Eminence because you address a cardinal as your eminence. And he used to wear red. Cardinals do that. And in France, he was, I mean, he was on top of the pile. He was the most important man in France. But as much as he disliked Huguenots, he wasn't averse to making alliances with Protestant countries where he wanted and needed to. So he issued some, I don't know if it's 100 or 170 treaties during his time as first minister. And sometimes multiple treaties with the same country, Holland, the low countries, as they were called, England. He made deals with Piedmont and Switzerland, which at that stage was like a, an independent canton of France. And, and the guy was happy to make – he was pragmatic. He was happy to make a deal with anyone who'd make a deal with him to achieve his ends. For the good of France, he would make alliances to take out the Spanish Catholics in northern Italy, which is a strategic place where they felt France could be under pressure. So he wasn't afraid to make alliances, as you said, uh, and, going and forward. And for the Huguenots, obviously as sad as it was, persecuted as they were, many died. Some fled, and his surname was Duplessis. And there are many duplices in South Africa Correct. as a result of yeah. them having been Huguenots yeah. and having fled in the wake of policies brought to bear by Cardinal Richelieu. But what was quite interesting as well was the leniency in terms of he allowed the Protestants to be able to practice their faith even after he yes. basically took them out. But he decimated the political strength. You know, they were no longer a force in France. After there was a war that happened, uh, the religious war, I think it was in La Rochelle. Mm-hmm. I think it lasted a year. And after that, the Huguenots as such, you know, they had no more power. Yeah, that siege at La Rochelle is uh, a famous result of the war between the forces of Louis Thirteenth and the Huguenots. Correct. And he was in the front in that war. Yeah. He commanded, I think, the troops of Louis Thirteenth. So, he was he was obviously a, a figure of some intrigue, a very grand personality. He he was obviously extremely talented at winning over the people who he could whisper things into the ears of. But he had a spy network, and he's also credited with being the inventor of the modern secret service, the modern secret agency, which is interesting. He had a huge network of spies across all of Europe who filled him in on everything. And he was constantly at work. He was always at his desk, mm. writing letters, developing treaties, giving missives, sentencing people to death. And he yeah. had plenty of enemies. But, I mean, he was the people were so naive around him. I mean, even the, the, the king's <laughs> brother. I mean, they came up with these plans. They're going to take him out. I mean, he, he knew about it. Yeah. It's incredible. That spy network really worked well. It was superb. And he was also grooming his successor, Cardinal Mazarin, who would end up taking over after him and, and who would play an important role in bringing Louis Fourteenth to power after Louis XIII's death. And um, he was also a press censor. You know, he, he shut down the press because if they didn't say what he wanted them to say, too bad for them. Mm. There was no freedom of speech or expression under him he also banned all political discussion outside of the parlement so if you spoke about politics Mm. in public and he overheard you or one of his spies overheard you 
Off to jail. <laughs> no politics for you. But he's also known as the father of the modern nation state because of his administration and the bureaucracy he developed around him. He was probably the best early example of how the nation state would develop after that. And his memoirs are, I think, the raison d'état, the reason for the state, the purpose of the state. And he's supposedly the guy who coined the sentence, the pen is mightier than the sword. Correct, he did do that. That was one of his famous statements. But overall, I think if you look at all the countries around, even Charles I, who was a tyrant in England, he had the Duke of Buckingham, who was absolutely useless as a soldier. And uh, Richelieu was key in in destroying him. Well, uh, the Duke of Buckingham was actually... Charles I's father, James I's lover. Oh, that's true. Correct. So that was uh, that was something people didn't talk about too much in the history books, but it must have been all the gossip around um, town yeah. in London. Yeah. But, uh, but maybe you're skilled in other areas and maybe yeah, not as, as a soldier. Perhaps, yeah. <laughs> but uh, what is interesting about Charles I is that that marriage was also orchestrated by Richelieu. Correct. He made sure that Henrietta Maria of mm. France married Charles I. Yes, Maria. They called in England, they called her Mary, but it was, and it was Maria. And then when he had his head cut off, Charles I, um, his son, Charles II, came to live at the French court mm. and then returned to assume the throne back in England yeah. and put England back on course. So he was just the chess master, oh, just, yeah. just moving the pieces around the board. Without a doubt. And I think if we look at French history all the way up to probably the end of the Napoleonic era, you can sense Richelieu's influence through all of it. Yeah, He was a patron of the arts. It's worth saying that he was a tremendously aesthetically aware human being. I mean, he, he commissioned incredible work on his Palais Cardinal, which became the Palais Royal in France. It's now the seat of one of the chambers of the French legislature. And he commissioned a number of explorers, Saint-Simon, I think was mm-hmm. one of the most famous ones, to go up into the uh, Saint-Laurent Strait and up the Saint-Laurent River, and they founded French Canada, yeah. called and, New France at that stage. And I think that there's even a city that's named after him in Canada. There's so many different things that are named after him in his legacy. Even a brandy here in Saint-Laurent. Even a, yeah, I think Richelieu. Yeah, good, eh? <laughs> Yeah, I think with a coke. Like a, I'm not sure, you know, how deep it goes, <laughs> but... But uh, France at the top of the pile, I think that that was his number one priority. By the time he passed away, France was on top of the pile and the king was everything. So there he is, um, an incredibly powerful man in an incredibly powerful time and someone who rolled out the red carpet for some of the greatest rulers of that era. Blind History is brought to you by Taylor Blinds and Shutters. All the episodes are available on the cliffcentral.com website and app, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. He apparently had a, in his private chapel, he had a crucifix there made of solid gold, and a chalice and a pattern, which is a, a dish that they used to put water in, 180 rubies and 9,000 diamonds in it. And he'd pray there every day on his own. So it was just for him. There was a lot of money in there. It's incredible. <laughs>